You're listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This episode features the audio from our event on September 22, 2022, with John Kowal and Wilfred Codrington III, authors of the book, The People's Constitution, 200 Years, 27 Amendments, and the Promise of a More Perfect Union. This event was held in celebration of Constitution Day and was part of the Talking Together series, a collaborative project with the Padno Sorosic Center for Civil Discourse, the Kaufman Interfaith Institute, and WGVU Media. This episode contains a moderated conversation between Houndstein Center Associate Director Brent Holmes, John and Wilfred, and includes questions from our live audience. If you'd like to learn more about this event or our speakers, please visit gvsu.edu slash hc slash Constitution Day 22, which is linked in the description below. Lastly, if you want to hear even more about John and Wilfred, make sure you check out their episode of Off the Stage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jeff Pallett. I am the director of the Ford Leadership Forum, uh, part of the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Foundation. And I am pleased as punch to be here tonight and partner with the Hauenstein Center and have the opportunity to introduce our two speakers. I would like to draw your attention to um, your program, which has a lot of the biographical information about the speakers. I won't be repeating that. Uh, what I do want to talk about is, for a few minutes, as I introduce them, is um, what we're talking about tonight, and that's this book, which I had the opportunity to spend a couple hours with last night. Uh, and as I was telling the speakers earlier, it's rather remarkable. I don't recall an other book that takes a systematic look at the amendment process of our Constitution. We are now 235 years into our constitutional history. And uh, it's an interesting history in part because I think the, the length of time sometimes blinds us to some of the novelty of the whole thing. In fact, Madison uses that phrase to describe the Constitution in the Federalist Papers, right? the novelty of the experiment. Part of the novelty of the thing is, is that it's a written Constitution. Um, it is, to my knowledge, the first written constitution uh, that a nation had to, to uh, establish its government and bind itself together. And I often find myself wondering what the framers of the constitution would think if they came back to America today uh, to see what they have wrought. And um, certainly they would be surprised by the uh, size, uh, the scope, uh, the, the centralization of our government. Um, they would probably be surprised by the weakness of Congress, which they thought was going to be the most dangerous branch of government in many ways. Um, they would probably be surprised that the thing still exists at all. Uh, I'm not sure that they, uh, I mean, there's, there was a lot of pessimism at the uh, writing of the Constitution about whether this thing could endure across generations. And one of the reasons uh, the authors of this book uh, um, uh, John Crowell and uh, Wilfred uh, Codrington uh, do so brilliantly in this book is they show how um, built into the Constitution, the people who wrote the Constitution dealt with some really fundamental problems. 
Um, among these are the questions of how we separate what a constitution is from what a constitution means. A lot of times when we think about constitutional issues, we're obsessed with meaning. Um, but they're indicating in this book that the uh, Constitution is about more than just meaning. Um, they understand that, uh, as Edmund Burke says, a government that has no capacity to change neither has any means to preserve itself. Um, and so built into our constitutional system is a way of preserving the system by changing the system. Uh, they dealt with uh, a fundamental problem of political life, and that is how can you create dynamic change within a political system while at the same time trying to figure out how to stabilize it and keep it from spinning in a kind of vertiginous, dizzying fashion. Um, and also how you can have a government that can adapt itself to changing circumstances without itself necessarily being the agent of those changing circumstances. And all these are the sort of difficulties that they faced in uh, the creation of our Constitution. And one powerful means they established to help deal with these problems was to create the amendment process. And as a political scientist, I can tell you that um, it is a part of constitutional design and constitutional history that just has not gotten sufficient attention. Uh, so when uh, the Hauenstein Center approached us and, and suggested this, and I did uh, a little uh, bit of look and read a couple of articles by our authors, I thought, this is really interesting. And why has no one done this before? And uh, it's in part a testimony to just how interesting the book is, that it's kind of hard to believe that no one's done it before. Um, I can tell you, based upon reading the book, you can tell from the biographies that uh, our speakers, John Cowell and Wilfred uh, Codrington, are experts in their field, uh, but more importantly, their expertise is revealed in the text of this book itself, and I'm confident will be revealed in the deft way they'll be hands handling your questions tonight. So please join me in welcoming tonight's speakers, Wilfred Codrington and John Cowell. Wilfred, John, again, thank you for joining us tonight to help us celebrate Constitution Day. Thank you, Brent, and thank, thank you, everyone. We, uh, we're so delighted to be here, and we want to just begin by thanking Grand, Val Grand Valley State University and the Howenstein Center and the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Foundation. Jeff, I want to thank you for your kind words and meant a lot to us, and, uh, and I want to thank you, Brent. You've been just a wonderful host to us our whole time here. Um, so uh, um, we, to begin our book talk, we wanted to start with a thought exercise. So I, I want you to visualize something. I want you to picture a time in America when the country was sharply polarized along regional lines, where the, the East and the Midwest were at odds with the rural, the South and heartland America. <clears throat> I want you to picture a time when our politics was gridlocked, when elections to Congress were very closely fought, control of Congress switched back and forth every few years, where the presidential elections were also closely fought, and twice in a short period of time, the Electoral College delivered the victory to the candidate who did not win the most votes. Um, I want you to picture a time when immigration was changing the face of the country in a way that worried a lot of people about what that meant for their own life opportunities and worried about the, what it would do to the character of the country. Yeah, and if you imagine further in America, 
where you have innovative new technologies that are transforming the way we communicate, the way we work, the way we live, making life more convenient and comfortable, but also creating a host of problems for democracy and our society more broadly. Imagine a time where economic inequality was increasing as a wealthy few wired the system to ensure that they could avoid contributing to the common good by paying their fair share of taxes. And imagine a time when a conservative Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution in ways that undermined the fundamental guarantees of equality while blocking progressive reforms advancing the interests of big corporations and the mega-rich while ignoring the majority. Raise your hand if this sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you'd be surprised that we're not talking about America in the 21st century. We're talking about America in 1899. In the America of 1899, amending the Constitution to revitalize an ailing democracy seemed impossible. That year, the Washington Post published an editorial urging reformers to give up their hopeless efforts to add more amendments to the Constitution. It's true, the paper said, that there is some dissatisfaction with the Constitution as it is. This is shown by the frequent proposal of amendments and by the earnestness with which they are pressed the attention of Congress. They have been, uh, they have been demands made on Congress for the submission of a woman suffrage amendment, an election by senators by a popular vote amendment, and various other amendments. Not one of them has any prospect of getting over that almost impassable route. For that reason, the editorials concluded, we may properly conclude that the Constitution is unamendable. And yet, uh, just 10 years later, in, in 1909, Congress passed the First Amendment in over 40 years. And by 1920, within just two decades after that dire pr uh, prediction, uh, Americans added four very significant amendments to the Constitution that really grappled with the problems of the time. So we added the 16th Amendment, which, uh, made the, uh, which authorized the income tax and allowed modern government to exist. We added the 17th Amendment that took the power to choose senators away from corrupt state legislators and gave it to the people. We added the, the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote after 50 years of campaigning for that. And we added the 18th Amendment, uh, which the Prohibition Amendment, which people don't think of as a reform, but at the time it was meant to uh, launch a noble experiment that America would be more prosperous, safer, more modern if we just could get rid of the poison known as alcohol. Uh, so, uh, but then uh, a few decades later, it's, uh, it's 1937. President Franklin Roosevelt was at a key moment in his presidency fighting against the Supreme Court that was overturning his New Deal reforms. And um, uh, as, Ro as Roosevelt battled the nine old men of the Supreme Court, he was urged to settle the matter by proposing a constitutional amendment that would clarify that the government had the power to pass the, to enact these kinds of reforms. And he had big majorities in Congress. Uh, but the president was unwilling to take that risk. And he said that it is, of course, clear that any determined minority group in the nation, without any great difficulty, could block uh, ratification by one means or another in 13 states for a long time. Uh, this pessimistic view 
uh, has been the norm in American history and it prevails today. It's very common among experts, for example. Uh, Professor Richard Albert, who's been a, a great friend of ours and he's a highly respected scholar, says the US Constitution is best understood as constructively unamendable. It gives the impression that everything is freely amendable, but really nothing today is amendable. Another really leading scholar, Sanford Levinson, argues it's next to impossible to amend the Constitution with regard to genuinely controversial issues, even if substantial and intense majorities are in favor of amendment. Um, so having said that, we agree that's an understandable point of view. It is certainly hard to amend the Constitution. It has only happened, as we'll hear tonight, in certain periods in our history. We've only had 27 amendments. But in our book, we argue that difficult is not impossible. And as our book illustrates, time and again, generations of Americans have overcome this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling that this important tool of democratic participation is out of reach and not worth trying to put their imprint on our national charter through this constitutional amendment process. So our book, The People's Constitution, tells a story of how American people have taken an imperfect constitution, a document that was both profoundly visionary and fundamentally flawed, and molded it into their own. They did this through their extraordinary efforts. They made the country more democratic, more inclusive, and more suited to the needs of a changing country. And that was through the amendment process. These changes have come primarily in four distinct waves, as John has mentioned, arising from some of the most turbulent periods in American history. The 12 amendments of the founding era address some omissions in the original charter, most notably the dearth of comprehensive protections for individual rights and liberty. The Reconstruction Era amendments, they promised a second founding in the wake of the Civil War. They abolished slavery, they guaranteed equal citizenship, and sought to extend voting rights for black men, while simultaneously imposing substantial limits on rogue state governments. In the Progressive Era, which we just described, the amendments sought to grapple with a modernizing nation beset by corporate greed and public corruption by authorizing the income tax, providing for the popular election of senators, extending the franchise to women and outlawing the manufacture, sale, and transportation of liquor. And the Civil Rights Era. In that era, through the amendment process as well, and though decidedly less ambitious than the other constitutional reforms of the prior eras, we continued to expand democracy, the voting rights of people, to enfranchise long ignored populations, and to update presidential succession for the nuclear age. So if, if some of these additions to the Constitution have brought really profound changes to our country and to our fundamental law. Other amendments are best described as technical fixes. But if you look at the 27 amendments over this 200-year span of history in these eras, it's no exaggeration to say that much of what Americans consider the most important parts of the Constitution, the heart of the Constitution and the heart of our national identity, everything from freedom of speech and religion to the guarantees of equal protection of the laws and due process of law, are not found in the beta version of the Constitution that the framers gave us. They're found in the periodic upgrades over the years. Uh, and uh, it's important to note, and it's not really taught in school, that over 40% of our Constitution was added after the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Uh, nevertheless, 
Um, despite this history, most Americans today you know, would agree with the editorial writers of the Washington Post in 1899. Uh, you know, most people think it's impossible to amend the Constitution. Many actually think it's unwise or possibly even dangerous. That, that question came up at a lunch today. That's a very common view. Uh, so, so we wrote this book as a forceful response to these critiques. Uh, in particular, we hoped to inject a sense of optimism and possibility. Uh, it, it's admittedly hard, uh, but, the, but that it's important to remember that it is viable and vital that we advance constitutional reform through this neglected you know, means of change, and that it's, it's kind of impossible to think that this incredible history, and we'll talk, we'll get into some of the details of it, is over, that it was something that past generations could do, but you know, Americans in the 20th century are not able to do. So our book is really a plea to put aside some of, uh, some of this defeatism, at least a little bit, uh, to recover our constitutional imagination. Um, uh, in writing the book, we made conscious decisions about its style and substance to ensure that it was broadly accessible. This is not a book written for lawyers and legal scholars. Um, our chief objective was actually to blend lively prose with rigorous history to make a book that was readable and would reach a wide audience. We think it's really important to reach ordinary Americans who don't think every day about this, but or Americans who care about our democracy, who care about the state of our country, to realize that there's one tool that we could use to actually improve our country. Um, you know, we were, we were extremely pleased, uh, and this is a, you know, perhaps a shameless plug, but uh, Publishers Weekly uh, wrote very nice things about our book, but they praised it as a really good read. And as they put it, incisive character profiles, brisk historical sketches, and lucid analyses of legal and political matters make the people's constitution an invigorating take on the history of American democracy. And we hope you'll think the same thing. As the people's constitution explains, while our story of the nation and the nation's charter began with the 1787 Philadelphia Confab, where 55 men in powdered wigs hashed out the framework that would shape the American experiment, it did not end there. That was just the first chapter in a much longer story, a story that continues today. As if in a long distance relay, they passed the baton to the successive generations of Americans with the expectations that they would continue the race. The framers were far more numerous, far more diverse than the men who gathered in Philadelphia and the men who assembled in the state ratifying conventions. They live across two centuries and face a plethora of existential crises. So we wanted to write this book to tell their stories because they're also our stories. And we believe that our stories separately and collectively, there is power and important messages for every American who cares about the state of our democracy today. Closing, I'd like to read a passage from the last chapter of our book. Perhaps no one has ever captured this process. This is the Article 5 process of amending the Constitution. No one has ever captured this process more powerfully than Thurgood Marshall, the grandson of a slave who championed the civil rights and then, in his later years, earned the distinction of becoming the first African-American justice of the United States Supreme Court. 
1987, as the nation marked its bicentennial, Marshall criticized the degree to which the celebration invited a complacent belief that the vision of those who debated and compromised in Philadelphia yielded a more perfect union it was said that we now enjoy. In a speech intended as a counterpoint to the gauzy festivities organized in honor of the framers' accomplishment, the justice offered a dissenting view. I do not believe that the meaning of the Constitution was forever fixed at the Philadelphia Convention, nor do I find that the wisdom, foresight, and sense of justice exhibited by the framers particularly profound. To the contrary, the government they devised was defective from the start, requiring several amendments, a civil war, a momentous so social transformation to attain the system of government and its respect for individual freedoms and human rights, which we hold dear today. Then, uh, when contemporary Americans cite the Constitution, they invoke a concept that is vastly different from what the framers barely began to construct two centuries ago. Now, the New York Times reported that Marshall's speech stuck perhaps the most negative note yet sounded in the bicentennial year by so prominent a public official, a stark contrast to the lavish praise of the framers' wisdom and the devotion to liberty and justice by figures including President Reagan and Warren E. Berger, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice. But this criticism surely missed the point. Marshall was merely saving his praise for the many framers who came after, the men and the women who fought to expand the narrow conception of we the people to produce a constitution that is more democratic, more inclusive, and more just. As Justice Marshall noted, the men who gathered in Philadelphia in 1789 could not have envisioned these changes. They could not have imagined, nor would they have accepted, that the document that they were drafting would one day be construed by a Supreme Court to which had been appointed a woman and a descendant of an African slave. We the people no longer enslave, but the credit does not belong to the framers. It but belongs to those who refuse to acquiesce to outdated, outdated notions of liberty, justice, and equality, and who strive to better them. Rather than encourage a blind pilgrimage to the shrine of the original document now stored in a vault of the National Archives, Marshall urged Americans to seek instead a sensitive understanding of the Constitution's inherent defects and a promising evolution through 200 years of history. In doing so, Marshall promised, we will see that the true miracle was not the birth of the Constitution, but its life, a life nurtured through two turbulent centuries of our own making. It was in this way, through periodic infusions of democratic energy, channeled through the Article V Amendment process that the Framers' Constitution became the People's Constitution. That passage concludes our book, but John and I hope that it is the start of a bigger conversation, one more broadly and one tonight. And we really look forward to starting that conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that uh, uh, overview of your work. Um, so, it's been more than 50 years since Congress last proposed a successful amendment, and nearly 30 years since the last amendment was ratified. Why write a book about this now, particularly when the chances of getting another amendment ratified in these polarized times 
seems remote. Sure. Yeah, so we started writing this book in 2016. Some people at the lunch will, uh, this will sound a little familiar, but uh, at that time we had another electoral college misfire where the president or the president-elect had lost the popular vote. This happened twice in two centuries. And so we thought in this time, how could that be possible? Uh, looking back, the sweep of American history has actually made our Constitution more democratic. We've, we've added a trove of amendments that just have expanded the rights of vote and incorporate more people in our democracy. But that wasn't just it. There were other problems we started to think about. We thought about problems maybe with the Supreme Court, problems with Congress, all sorts of problems that are affecting our, our, our democracy, our republic, and really you had to kind of be introspective. Sometimes when you have problems like this, it's not just the outside circumstances. There are structural problems and other problems that uh, go to the heart of this, right? And so we started this book to actually think about the ways that people have done this in the path, past and how it might create a path for us to look forward to reforming the Constitution going forward. Yeah, and the thing I would add to that is, you know, to, you know the thing about the electoral college is, you know, it, it, it would be very hard to change immediately, but there isn't even really a serious effort to amend the Constitution. There isn't anyone willing to say, I want to develop a multi-year, long-term campaign to finally get it. Um, and the story of our book is, and what we're inspired to tell these stories is, that is how constitutional change has happened. It, it doesn't happen overnight. Our book is the story of, of visionaries, gadflies, you know, people who are politicians, individual citizens who were determined to not let the Constitution stand the way it was, to bring this change about. The story of the women's suffrage amendment, you know, they, you know they, uh, at, at the end, um, at, you know, after the final ratification of it, you know, a, a historian, you know, who had been a movement leader said it was the product of 41 years of pauseless effort. Now, I know that doesn't sound very appealing, but I'll give you another example that in World War II, a congressman from West Virginia thought it was wrong to send troops to distant islands in the Pacific and not let them vote. And he proposed lowering the age to 18. Uh, it it you know, didn't go anywhere at the time. There were different attempts. It was really only in the Vietnam War and the period of the youth movement um, when uh, suddenly people felt like maybe this was a way to channel some of the youth anger that was in protest. But the, so this Jennings Reynolds, the, Jennings Reynolds, this uh, um, congressman, Jennings Randolph, sorry, this uh, congressman was still there, you know, 30 years later, a senator. And, you know, we got, but it's really wonderful to tell the story about how he was finally on his 11th try able to get the amendment through. And so I, I, I guess to answer your question, I think that um, unless people are willing to be committed to long-term change, then nothing is gonna change. So, so at the end of the convention, um, James Wilson read a statement from Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and in, in that statement, it, it talked about how the, the document that they created was, was flawed, wasn't a perfect document. Um, that being said, why is it so hard to amend the con Constitution? Why did they make it so, so difficult? Well, you know, um, you know the, as we explain in the book, uh, one of the reasons we have this Constitution is the frustration many people had with America's first constitution. We, uh, you, you may know we had a, a constitution called the Articles of Confederation. And uh, it provided for a fairly weak 
federal government, and people felt like, well, we needed to add more powers. But it unfortunately had a provision that to change the Articles of Confederation, every state had to agree. And so what happened time and again was that 12 states would agree and one state would not agree with it. With Often in, Rhode Island, yeah, <laughs> the yes. tiny state. Often Rhode Island, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and you know, George Washington and James Madison were indignant that this little state was stopping these changes. So it was one of the reasons, you know, they, they uh, called for a convention to um, propose changes to the Articles. And once they locked the doors, they ripped up the Articles of Confederation and started over. So one of the things that was really important to them was to have a better means of amending it. They wanted something that would be more able to change with the times. Um, but oddly enough, they, because they were so distracted with other important arguments, they spent precious little time really thinking about the, the process. And it changed a few times, and then right at the end, uh, it changed again. Uh, but but you know, it's, it's disappointing to see that they didn't spend quite as much time. And so you know, it, it's, it's fair to say that they, um, I, don't, I think they, um, I'll say one more thing, that they were trying, though, uh, even though there's not a lot of record, to uh, walk a middle path. Uh, they didn't want the Constitution to be so rigid that its faults would, you know, uh, bring it down. But they didn't want it so changeable that many of the hard compromises they made over slavery, over democracy, over states' rights, they didn't want them wiped away easily either. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't actually decided whether it's... Uh, it should be easier to amend the Constitution because then we might get a lot of bad amendments. But I think uh, they did make it a little, maybe a little too hard. Yeah, um, and it's it's not just the compromises like those. It's also just fundamental principles, things we think about in terms of the rule of law. So they may not have gotten all the balance right on a number of things, but there are things we think that are important to a democracy. So for example, an independent judiciary. And I was just mentioning that. Maybe that should be the subject of an amendment because maybe they didn't get the formula right for how to make a judiciary properly independent. But they still had this idea that they wanted to lock in and they didn't want that to be just tossed in the dustpins of history. It did take a long time. There were many starts and, and, and false starts to actually get to a constitution that was going to unite the people. Um, and so they really wanted to try to have something to make the Constitution amendable, but not a process that would make it too amendable, to make it, you know, to elevate it above what a normal statute of regulations does. But they did, you know, I mean, I think the evidence is clear that, you know, that, that, you know that in the lifetime of people who, you know, wrote the Constitution, we added 12 amendments, you know, by 1804. I mean, they were all there. They saw that. So, you know, that's... Um, that's evidence that they, did, they expected there'd be amendments. I, I believe they would be surprised that there were so few at the end of the day. There was James, um, sorry, Thomas Jefferson who thought we should get rid of the Constitution every 20 years. Um, so I think he would certainly be surprised that we have the same Constitution. Mm -hmm. Can you share, you talked about it a little bit in your, in your overview, but can you share a little bit more about your argument that amendments come in cyclical waves? Yeah, it'd almost be nice to have a chart to show this, because if you look at the actual uh, pictorially, you'd see a bunch of clusters at certain periods. And so the idea here is that, you know, we amend the Constitution. Often before we do so, we think it's impossible to do it. Um, but it takes a lot to get us to this point where we want to amend the Constitution. You shouldn't amend the Constitution for just anything, right? We want it to be for the most fundamental values and principles and things to structure our government. 
But often we get to a period after a long, long period of time, decades, almost half a century often, where it looks like the nation is about to collapse. You know, in the initial founding period, right? We, we didn't know that we would um, have this constitution survive past the ratification, and then we added the Bill of Rights to actually pacify some of the people who didn't think that the constitution did enough to protect individual rights and liberties. Uh, you get to the Reconstruction Era. That happened after the Civil War. We literally had a partial dissolution, right? And it, it was the amendments that actually kind of melded those fractures. It happened in the Progressive Era. It happened in the Civil Rights Era. In the Civil Rights Era, it's interesting because we think about the violence and the political sort of discord we see today. And there was a lot of that stuff going on then. That was before my time, I have to admit. But um, if, if, as scholars of history, and uh, they know that that was a really turbulent time. And we also amended the Constitution to add things that would shore it up. So if you look at it, most of our amendments actually come in these clusters. We have a few stray amendments in different times, but, um, and, and we are about at a period that's as long as it has been in previous periods before we've amended the Constitution. Yeah, I think one of the reasons they seem to happen in clusters is that you know, we, most of American history, uh, the nation is closely divided. Polarization is not new. It's existed many times in our history. But then there are just these moments where the pendulum swings and a new coalition is in power. And they're often not in power for very long, like the Reconstruction you know, Congress or Progressive Congress in, in the 20s. And, uh, and then at some point, the pendulum swings back. But I, I want to read just this very brief passage because it always makes me chuckle a bit. So you know, there were, we told you about the four Progressive Era amendments. And there was a fifth that they tried to put out there, which is an amendment to ban child labor. And it's one of those amendments that basically reacted to a reactionary Supreme Court that twice overturned laws in Congress to end what was a pernicious practice, really horrible practice of children under 10 working in mines and mills. And, and the Supreme Court said, you know, it's, you know, it's repugnant to the Constitution to take on this issue. So uh, there was, this amendment uh, was approved with really quickly and it went to the states, but there it stalled. And, and uh, so I want to read this. But the path to ratification proved more onerous than anyone imagined. Amendment fatigue had set in as Americans grew tired of progressive policy reforms. They have taken our women away from us by constitutional amendment. They have taken our liquor away from us. And now they want to take our children, complained an exasperated state legislature later. It's funny, actually, when I talk about that period in, uh, in constitutional history to my students, I say, I ask them, I say, what would you think if we had an amendment to ban or allow, allow Congress at least to regulate child labor? And they say, like, why would we need that? And I, and I kind of tell this story that we actually did at one point. We proposed this idea. I also you know, um, have them think about this idea of babies going to mines with little lights on their heads and things like that. That always gets a chuckle. But it's, it's a real thing. It, it was a real concern. It's one, of, it's one of six amendments that Congress approved that didn't make it through the ratification process. And, and, and we tell those stories, too, in addition. We tell the story of each of the 27 amendments, but also these six other amendments. And, and they're, they're, they're interesting, too. And the most famous one, probably, that you know of is the Equal Rights Amendment. But there were six in our history that failed, including one. Uh, very disturbing at the beginning of the Civil War, uh, passed on the morning of Abraham Lincoln's inauguration as a last-minute desperate attempt to prevent the South from seceding. It was an amendment that would have basically allowed slavery in perpetuity in the states where it already existed. 
And it's, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, a great man, but he, at, at his inauguration, he said nice things about it, and it's something we should look into. And so, uh, so, that's it. so anyway, there's a, lot, there's a lot of interesting drama and twists and turns in this story. So looking at uh, the Constitution's Article II covering the presidency, um, there's no fewer than four amendments that were adopted to clarify the language. Um, why, do you, why is that? Yeah, so um, let's, we can start here by saying that the, when they were thinking about who was going to head the executive, like we think about the commander in chief, we think about the president being sort of like the chief emissary to the world. We think about the president taking on a lot of other things, but they didn't really fully know what an executive would do and they didn't define it well. If you look at Article 2 now, it really starts out by saying the executive power shall be vested in a uh, president of the United States. And then it tells a lot of stuff about how you elect the president and the, tra the transition and, you know, they get the uh, welcome ambassadors, but not much more. And so mm -hmm. there was a little thought about it. It was contentious. They knew that what an executive could be if tyrannical, that would be King George. They knew what executive could be if it was the aspirational type for them, which was George Washington, who was standing in front of the convention in front of them. But they didn't really think about the other Georges we could possibly have, right? And so we've had to amend the Constitution on several occasions to either account for how we elect the president or think about a proper transition in the case of presidential death. Um, and, and so that it, it's been actually, um, for people, again, who thought a lot about these ideas deeply, it's hard to kind of put it to paper, one, to get the compromises on these, these ideas, and two, to really think forward what the president might have to deal with. Yeah, they, only, they had four months to do their work, but they spent the first two months in a heated fight that almost killed the whole enterprise over the representation of states, like whether we should have a government of the states where every state has one vote, like the Articles of Confederation, or whether we should have a government of the people where big states get more representation based on their population. That was settled through a compromise that gave us the House based on popular representation and a Senate based on equal state representation. But so they had to, they had to rush through a lot of other stuff. And just to give you one example, you know, uh, they, they talked, they, they, had, they created a president, and they, they, they dithered about whether to create a vice president, and they threw that in at the end, but they never ever said clearly that when the president dies that the vice president becomes president. They said that the powers of the office devolve on the vice president. So when the first president died, William Henry Harrison, there was actually a controversy over, well, is John Tyler president? Is he acting president? Is he... And, and so he boldly asserted that he was president. And, you know, and we write that you know, John Quincy Adams was indignant that he was so audacious to do that. But it was really only until the 25th Amendment in 1967 that we clearly said that, the, that the vice president becomes president. Also, in, also, they created a vice president, but there was no way to replace the vice president. So for like 37 years in our history, after a president died, there was no vice president. Like they, were, they didn't, do, and so that, you know, and you know, we're here in the city uh, that remembers Gerald Ford, but you know, Gerald Ford was the first person to invoke, you know, to be, you know, they invoked this principle where he was chosen to be vice president, and then he, he was the first person to formally, clearly be president under the Constitution without any cloud or confusion about that. 
Yeah, and, and sort of even to add to the vice president aspect, for a third of the time that you had vice presidential vacancies, the person who was next in line, often by an act of Congress determining succession, was a member of the different party. Could you imagine a Republican replacing a Democrat in the middle of an administration? Now that seems a little bit out of whack. So they didn't really give much thought to that. And just to add one more part about the executive, right? I, I said it's very, if it's, our constitution overall is very scant. It's not many words. It's one of the shortest in the world. Um, and, and Article 2 is quite short as well. And so to think about some of the things we uh, connect to the presidency, uh, on, the, on the progressive side, for example, we think about administrative agencies. There's nothing in the Constitution about administrative agencies. Uh, often on conservatives, they like to invoke the idea, broad swath, of, of presidential privilege. There's nothing in the Constitution about presidential privilege. All of this has come as we adapted to what the, the, the office requires over time. And, and maybe some of it should be constitutionalized, but it seems like there are things that we can sort of figure out ourselves without the text, and then other times where the divisions are so large and so unclear, we need to resort to Article 5. Hmm. What, what would you think uh, the framers would think about how, how we as Americans uh, consider the First Amendment today? Well, I'll start, and I'm, you know, I just want to say, uh, for full disclosure, I'm not a professor. I'm a, you know, a, a, an executive leader of an organization, but we do have a professor, and so I'm going to turn to him in a second. But I just want to say in the beginning, really more of something from our book, which is, you know, the, we, you know, we, we rightly revere the Bill of Rights today. Um, and, and the fight over the Bill of Rights was an important early fight in our history. Uh, but the truth is, there was very little enthusiasm for the Bill of Rights. You know, it was, I mean, the Bill of Rights was basically used as a wedge issue by the anti-federalists who wanted to kill the Constitution. They didn't like the Constitution because it gave too much power to the federal government. But the argument that, hey, you're creating this powerful government and not protecting rights was the one that really worked and threatened to kill the Constitution. So after a lot of dithering, the, the federalists pro promise when we create the government, we'll add it. But it, it, it um, there was very little, there was a lot of apathy in Congress, like almost nobody wanted to do anything about it. And so it's really James Madison, almost single-handedly, he kept coming back saying, I want to talk about this. And they would say, oh, we have more important things to do. He finally forced them to, uh, uh, to uh, vote on the Bill of Rights, who went to the states. Even then, it took a while and almost didn't pass in the states, you know, because the, the truth is the people who were demanding it realized that if we support the Bill of Rights, then we're strengthening the Constitution that we hate and the people who loved the Constitution didn't think we needed it. And so when it finally was ratified, um, it, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State and it fell on him to announce it. And he basically sent it out in a newsletter under something about uh, a new law on fisheries. And then it just was this little note that the bill, the, these amendments were adopted. There was very little fanfare. Nobody said, well, now our rights are protected. It, it was really only later that the uh, that the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment became so central in our, in our lives. Yeah, um, and so what would they think about it? Well, first of all, they would think that uh, it, <laughs> they may be mad that it's not the Third Amendment. There were two proposals to, uh, that came before it. So the Bill of Rights was initially a package of a dozen proposals, two of which weren't passed or adopted at the time. One eventually was adopted as our 27th Amendment 200 years after. Um, so it would have been our Third Amendment. But um, even more, I think they would not be sure what to think of what happened. 
So certainly the idea was that we want this robust speech, we want debate, it's important for the character of a democracy and developing society and community and civility. Um, but I'm not sure that they would, um, they, one, they couldn't envision the way we would think about it today in light of technology, so they weren't tweeting. Um, and, and I'm not sure that they would have really have thought about that, right? They were, they were sending pamphlets around. Um, it's not, I, I certainly don't think that they think it would have been used to protect corporations to influence elections, right? The sort of idea of, of campaign money being speech, that's not what it was envisioned for. Um, I think they would probably think what we think about most of constitutional law and a lot of these sort of broader uh, majestic generalities, right? That things that are not precisely defined, that there's a balance. There's a balance between what we need to have our liberty and continue a conversation for democracy on the one hand, but also to ensure that we're protecting the equality and safety of other people on the other. And so it's a balance like anything else. And so we can't go, we, can, we can't have a cultish view of the First Amendment. We can't have a cultish view of any amendment or any part of the Constitution. It all needs to be thought about and applied and interpreted in context and with some balance. During your research and writing of the book, what, were, what characters did you meet from American history that have been under, underappreciated or lost? Uh, <sighs> There's a lot of characters, um, in our, and it, it's very colorful. Um, I, I want to tell, so, so John started to mention a counterintuitive story about the Corrin Amendment that would have preserved slavery and would not have allowed Congress to abolish it. There's another story of Spessard Holland. Spessard Holland, um, there's a massive global law firm called Holland and Knight. It's one of the largest in the world. Uh, he was one of the named partners there, but he was uh, sort of a, this really prestigious uh, resume, right? He was, uh, he went to um, college, played baseball, was scouted to play in the majors. He was a state, he went to law school, he was a state senator, he was a local judge, a prosecutor, became governor, ultimately was appointed to the Senate and became a senator from the state of Florida in his own right. And while he was in the state house in Florida and as governor, he led the crusade to end the poll tax. Um, which is that pernicious device that was uh, imposed to keep people from voting. And when he got to Congress, he also led this fight, finally successful, to, uh, to ban the poll tax. The, the twist is, Spessard and Holland, uh, Holland was an arch segregationist. And it just had us thinking, like one of these, like, what is the segregationist doing, trying to get rid of the poll tax? Well, the chief reason, and we, we found one of his letters to his constituents who talked about various reasons why he did it, but the chief reason was, he thought about the poll tax, and this has to go with the nuances of how we think about elections which are divided between the states and Congress. He thought that the poll tax, if you had to ban it through an amendment, then the civil rights legislation, especially the civil rights legislation that was being proposed to deal with uh, discrimination in voting, would also have to go through the amendment process. So by pushing the poll tax through the amendment process, then you would make it more difficult because of the higher bar to get an amendment through for all other civil rights legislation. Bizarre. So I would say that's one of the more interesting characters <laughs> that I met. Yeah. 
Um, uh, I, I, I guess, you know, I mean, I want to answer the question a little differently because I, uh, he's, he's not an obscure character, but I developed a, like a far deeper appreciation for President Franklin Roosevelt in, in writing this book. And of course, he, he sort of is, uh, you know, he's, he, he goes against the narrative of the book as the, the story of Franklin Roosevelt is someone who, you know, came, you know, he came to power at a moment of crisis, but also was one of those pendulum swings where the Democrats came roaring back and he had the kinds of majorities where he could make enduring changes to the Constitution. And as I said earlier, he just decided it was too risky. He felt in the emergency of the National uh, Depression that, uh, that it would take too long. But, but uh, I, 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 um, my appreciation for him has to do with one of the themes that runs through our book, which is the question of states' rights versus national power. And it, it's very clear is that the story of the Constitution was to uh, get over the mistake of the weak Articles of Confederation, to give Congress power to solve the nation's problems. They wanted a robust government. Uh, and the, the Anti-Federalists hated it, but they lost the argument. They came and joined the Union and became part of America. And they were very successful for most of American history in just pretending that they won. So in the courts and in politics, basically a state's rights view, especially in the 19th century, prevailed. And we had courts that kept stopping Congress from fulfilling the role that James Madison imagined. And what I would admire Roosevelt for is that as he had this fight with the courts and he was you know, being really pushed to go the constitutional amendment route, he decided he was going to um, take it to the people and basically ar argue for the vision of the Constitution that would allow him to, you know, and Congress to work together to solve the nation's problems. And, and, and so that, you know, the famous story of the switch in time when the Supreme Court changes, but it, it set in motion a dramatic constitutional change without amendment. And so I, you know, I just um, uh, have developed a great admiration for his, um, I had no idea that, that how significant he was for that reason. So, you know, it's just he sort of, um, amended the Constitution through other means, and we're living with that today, although honestly, we, you, know, you may see in the next few years some erosion in that vision because we now have a court that is you know, similar in its views to those courts before Roosevelt that kept finding reasons to say Congress doesn't have power to act in this way and that way. And so we, we may be, be refighting these fights and maybe having an amendment would have uh, locked it in a bit more than it is now. Yeah, there's one uh, constitutional theorist um, Griffin, he's at Tulane, who says, well, maybe the administrative state would be more secure if we had actually passed that uh, child labor amendment, the idea that we can actually regulate these things through agencies or otherwise, um, which might be proving a little prescient at this point. Okay. I have one more question before we open it up to, uh, to the audience. Are we likely to see a wave of, you, you hinted about this, um, are we likely to see a wave of new amendments to the Constitution in the foreseeable future? Well, look, we, we don't have a crystal ball. And, but, but, uh, uh, but if past is prologue, we are, I think, likely and, and counterintuitively to see amendments. And at, in the last chapter of the book, we, um, we look at what we call kind of the green shoots of in, interest in amendments. So, um, you know, one, I think, interesting example is the renewed interest in the Equal Rights Amendment, that starting with the Me Too movement, you saw people saying, well, wh what? We don't have an Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution? I think a lot of, you know, I think a lot of Americans think it is in the Constitution, and you saw states try to ratify it, and that, you know, it's probably not going anywhere, but it's, to me, it's evidence that, that, that 
building wave is coming. We, um, we, I mean, uh, you want to talk a little bit about our theory and the different... Uh, sure, yeah. So when you look at the various periods where we've amended the Constitution, you start seeing some recurring themes or these green shoots that John was talking about. Um, one is that there's intense polarization right before we amend the Constitution. Sound familiar? Uh, another is that you get these Supreme Court opinions that really uh, people, the American people, the majority are not for. Um, we might be seeing that, whether with Dobbs or Citizens United. Uh, another is that you get experimentation in the states, right? So you have these problems and the states are trying to resolve, resolve them themselves under their own processes because the American Constitution can't do it. And we see that happening with this movement to sort of go around the Electoral College called the National Popular Vote Compact, which is about 75% the way there. We'll see if it actually gets there. Um, we see that the Constitution is amended uh, in or around periods of crisis and war and pandemic. Um, uh, so those, those are the types of things that we have seen as consistent themes. And, and I do want to put a note of caution. We are, we are believers that these are parallels that we've seen, but history doesn't always repeat itself. It may rhyme, right? There's that. And there's the limitation that none of this was inevitable. This all took the work of powerful social movements, innovative leadership, and other people to be insightful enough to see that we have these problems and push to reform them. So, uh, none of this is set in stone, and if we actually want to cure these deficiencies, we need to do the hard work ourselves. One other thing that gives me hope is that there were, you know, the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia has done these different, you know, pulled together these scholars to talk about ways to fix the Constitution. And so there was a group of scholars, progressives and libertarian conservatives. And, uh, and I, have to, I have to admit I haven't had a chance to read their full report, but they agreed on four amendments, you know, one of which is one that we think is really important, which is to implement term limits for Supreme Court justices. Not just term limits, but regular terms. So imagine every two years, one person rotates off and a new person comes on. Every president would get two appointments in the term. No more gamesmanship, no more Merrick Garlands, no more strategic retirements and all, you know, or just the, you know, like death watch of something, when is this person gonna die? Um, you know, we, and, and just to add, it would prevent people from being appointed to be there for 30 and 40 years and would make the court more, um, it would reflect more the, re the results of the presidential elections, which would have some democratic legitimacy. But I, I, I say that as a sign of hope because they did agree that that's something that would be good. And that makes me believe, I mean, if there's one good thing about the constitutional amendment process, I mean, it's so hard, but when you get to that point, you actually are building super majorities in the United States. And sometimes I think it's really good to try to not win everything with 50.1% of the vote, but to build consensus. And, this is a, a way to build consensus. And when you get to that point and you get an amendment through, it often opens the door for more amendments to come through, which is in line with our theory that they come in waves, right? So you have this sense of impossibility, you get this overwhelming consensus to amend the Constitution, and then you say, we have these other problems too. Let's fix them while we're at it, while we have this movement going to reform it. Right, any questions from the audience? Hi, thank you for coming to Grand Rapids. I was just curious about how did the book idea get started? Did one of you approach the other? Were you approached together to write it or how, how did it come about as an idea? Well, you know, I, I work at the Brennan Center for Justice and, and we, I'm involved in a lot of our hiring 
And in, in an interview for a, a position, a different position in the organization, I, I met Wilfred and I was very impressed with him. And we started to talk, you know, about, we were talking about the Electoral College and we, he just, we just, you know, he was really excited about it, you know, and really upset about it. And, and um, so, uh, you know, the not, that was right around the time of the 2016 election. And so I wrote a piece in, for the Brennan Center just sort of trying to understand the, the 2016 election by looking at the ways our democracy is suffering. You know, vote suppression, money in politics, gerrymandering. But one was the Electoral College, you know, and asking the question, you know, yes, it's hard, but why isn't anyone trying to do something about it? Um, so uh, I still was trying to recruit Wilfred, and so we met, uh, and he reminded me, I thought it was for a coffee, but it was over in Manhattan, I'm reminded, <laughs> but it's, uh, uh, which may have helped seal the deal. But, uh, and uh, and, and we, so we, I just was talking about this idea, and, and, I, and you know, I have to say, you know, I mean, it was just a germ of an idea. Uh, and, and so uh, we hired Wilfred as a fellow, to, and we just, from the, from the day one, we worked on this together and figured it out together. And neither one of us has ever written a book, so there were a lot of false starts, <laughs> you know, just you know, digging you know, holes needlessly. But, it took, but once we got our groove, it was, a, I think, a wonderful collaborative process. It was, it was interesting, actually, when we talked to the publishers. We had this idea about ideas for amending the Constitution itself, and we had, like, a smaller part was about the history, and the, the publishers were like, let's make more of it about the history. That sounds like the really interesting stuff. So it, it's just a whole sort of lesson about how a book project evolves over time when you work together and talk to other people about it and have four years, including a pandemic, that kind of uh, changes and, and um, you know, um, changes your processes. It was interesting because just today I was listening to the Jeff Rosen podcast that described this Supreme Court justice process that you just mentioned tonight. I found it very enlightening, this 18-year uh, and every two-year term. It was a, a great idea, I thought. Uh, but in my short-term memory, it seems that in at least maybe the last three presidential administrations, they seem to be operating a great deal more under executive orders uh, or attempting to govern by executive order. Uh, is, is that necessarily a, a failure of Congress or is, do you believe, a potential constitutional amendment to help define that authority that can be, uh, executive orders can be used to implement certain policies? Well, the Constitution doesn't uh, say anything about executive orders. It's one of the things that's evolved and, and it's something we worked on in the Brennan Center from time to time. I mean, what you see is at, in times when there is a huge amount of, of gridlock and polarization, but when, 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 when Congress is dysfunctional and can't pass legislation, the temptation arises to try to do more through executive action. And, and, and the truth is sometimes, you know, I mean, Congress, I mean, uh, one, um, Congressman Jamie Raskin uh, blurbed our book and was very kind to us. And he, uh, I mean, I've heard him on multiple occasions say, you know, that, you know, Congress is the first article in the Constitution. It's the most important branch. But the truth is Congress often abdicates. It, you know, it doesn't want to take on hard issues or, you know, so, or, or it won't make the, in, the reforms needed to allow the, the, the institution to function properly. I mean, like, you know, the filibuster, you know, I mean, it's a convenient excuse to not get anything done is one way of looking at it. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure uh, I see an amendment to fix that problem. What we really need is Congress to do its job and then we wouldn't need executive orders. Uh, 
Yeah, and really, this book is about getting the idea started. So maybe there is an amendment. Who knows? But we really want to get the process started where people are thinking deeply about what is appropriate in light of the problem. So, you know, Alexander Hamilton thought that the judiciary is going to be the least dangerous branch. We see that that is not the case. There was also fears, as I mentioned up front, that we might have a, a tyrant for an executive. Um, you know, you make your own assessment of that, but Congress was the, the body that they were most afraid of, and Congress is impotent. And part of it, as John said, is self-inflicted wounds. They, they uh, put in procedures like the filibuster. They don't fund themselves to build up a staff and of experts to do these things, which means a lot of their sort of work is outsourced to lobbyists and things like that. And, and really, they don't want to deal with some of the harder issues that might make them politically vulnerable. They haven't voted on whether we go to war in decades. And we've been in military engagements over this time, and it's just, they're just letting the executive make those decisions, and that was not in the Constitution. So, you know, there are a lot of problems with all the institutions that sort of amount and, and lead to the president leading by executive order. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room for amendments kind of shore some or many of those parts up but it really is about brainstorming these ideas now so we can get that in motion. Thank you. I, my understanding is, is that the Equal Rights Amendment was ratified or certified by enough states to qualify it to become a part of the Constitution, but that there was an, a violation in a time uh, limitation and that yeah. the National Archivist hasn't physically added it. Can you explain exactly what is the status of the Equal Rights Amendment? Sure, at this point? it's uncertain right now. Um, uh, actually, there is a hearing for the new archivist, uh, either yesterday or today. So it's interesting, and I'm sure some of the advocates of the Equal Rights Amendment would press yeah. the, the, the new archivist nominee on that question. But the idea there was, you know, there were, there was, the child labor amendment is actually what started a lot of this. So the child labor amendment was proposed and it looked like it might get some support and then it was at the end of this period so the sort of energy was zapped. And then like later on, later in, um, in Roosevelt's presidency, it kind of started to come back to life again. Other states were like, let's ratify this thing after a period of more than a decade. And so there was a process where um, for every amendment um, they would, that was going to be proposed, they would put a time limit on it. They would give a seven-year ratification deadline so that it can't be out there into perpetuity. They did this with the Equal Rights Amendment. And John, I'll let you talk about this because I know you wrote an interesting paper on this part. Yeah, let me, let me um, uh, let's, go, let's step back a bit. So the, the Constitution doesn't actually say like what a process is to declare an amendment valid. It's a kind of a metaphysical thing. When three quarters of the states ratify, it shall be part of the Constitution. So, uh, and the Constitution doesn't speak to time limits, and the, the first, uh, the first uh, amendment to do it was the Prohibition Amendment, actually. And the reason was that someone put it in because they were hoping that the states would not ratify it, but instead it was ratified very quickly. And so some states had the deadline and some didn't. The, the, uh, the uh, deadline for the ERA was added at the last minute by one of the enemies of the ERA, Senator Sam Irvin, uh, uh, a, um, you know, who was well known for his, like, the, during the Watergate hearings, but he also was well known as uh, you know, a segregationist senator and anti-civil rights. And so, um, uh, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the sponsors of the amendment thought, well, what the hell, we have such, we have such strong support, it's not gonna make a difference. And Alice Paul, 
who wrote the amendment in 1923, was still alive in 1972, working behind the scenes to get it ratified, Alice Paul said, we're doomed, we've lost the amendment like, because of that time limit. And that's what happened. You know, it, it, within a year, like 30 of the 38 states ratified the ERA. But then Phyllis Schlafly cranked up the machine of opposition and it stalled at 35 states. So, um, uh, you know, most people, to be honest, assume the amendment was a dead letter after they extended the deadline, but that, that at that point it would be a dead letter. Uh, but then with this new energy, people said, well, we can waive the deadline. Like the deadline was imposed by Congress and Congress can get rid of it. So imagine a scenario where um, the Democrats were in charge of Congress when Virginia, the, the 38th state, ratified it. They could have rushed a, a bill saying, we waive the deadline and we consider the ERA valid and part of the Constitution. That might have worked. You know, there actually were a couple of amendments that were where there, there was a debate over whether enough states had ratified it. The 14th and 15th amendments where states were trying to withdraw their ratification. Um, and Congress just ignored them and said it's valid. So, uh, but unfortunately, it, 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 that, that vote happened at a time of divided government. The House was quickly w willing to act and, and Mitch McConnell uh, sat on it. And, and so, so right now, I mean, I don't see much hope of that. I mean, but the archive, I'll say one last thing, the archivist thing is just, it's subject to a law. Like at different times, somebody had the job of counting the states and saying it's ratified. And it's, so it's the job of the archivist, but he said, I don't want to do it unless a court directs me to the right answer. And so that's, that's where it's stuck. And I think it's uh, sadly and, stuck. And to uh, note that there was a court in the District of Columbia that said that it was not valid, that since been appealed, and actually uh, I, I think the hearing for it might have also been this week. So it's with a three-judge panel in the appellate court in the District of Columbia. So we'll see what they say, but typically the courts really haven't been involved in amendment battles, and that that is almost um, perfectly clear. So it, 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 it kind of puts a lot of ideas up against each other. Who should really be involved in this amendment process? Should the court be interpreting and refereeing the amendment process? Particularly when you think about the fact that we often amend the Constitution to restrain the court or overturn their decision. So now how do we think about the court refereeing that process? And because it's such a gargantuan uh, task to do, right? So do you want to give sort of credit to the, the, the task. So it's, it's a very long, circuitous, uncertain status is what our answer was saying, but it has, um, it has a lot of people really interested in the Equal Rights Amendment again. And there have been messy moments like that in the past, and, you know, and, but when, you know, there's always the possibility of starting over, which I, I, mean, I realize people don't, they want to exhaust this option, but there's huge support for the Equal Rights Amendment. I mean, and, you know, and right now, the Republicans used to overwhelmingly support the ERA, President Gerald Ford supported it. Um, you know, it became more polarized, but what if, it, what if they tried to get it adopted again? Dare people to vote against it? You know, run TV ads against them, defeat them, maybe scare a few people by defeating them and get them to approve it. I mean, there's overwhelming support for the ERA in this country. We are one of the few constitutions in the world that does not guarantee gender equality in our constitution. Women are not even mentioned in the constitution in any way. I mean, even the 19th Amendment just talks about discrimination by sex, but it doesn't say the word woman or that women have rights. No. Thank you for coming tonight. I think it's been uh, extremely fascinating and pivotal, especially where we're at in our democracy right now. I wanted to return to executive power. 
um, for my question. Over the last few months, there's been a rise in rhetoric from sitting members of Congress about Christian nationalism. Do you think that we need an amendment to the Constitution to protect against cult of personalities and or authoritarian leaders who try to circumvent our laws and take control? Um, so I think when we amend the Constitution, we want to be cautious about the substance of these amendments. So I think, you know, prohibition is that sort of perfect example of being, having to be thoughtful. It's the only amendment that's ever been rescinded, and that has to happen through amendment. Um, and it was sort of regulating this policy issue that could be dealt with in the normal framework of the Constitution. And I think we do have, you know, <laughs> on the one hand, there are elements that we do need to amend to sort of shore up our democracy and ensure that authoritarianism, that strain, um, is going to be vanquished. I think there's some um, important legislation we need to deal with, and there's some important amendments we need to deal with. And, and so I guess the question goes to what the nature of those things. Do we deal with this uh, particular thing that we're seeing today? Or do we deal with the larger issue that has made it possible today? And I, I tend to think that amendments, given our constitutional sort of structure, given our culture, we do better at amending broadly and then filling in the details with legislation and regulation. So my, my, my sense is that, but you know, that's my sense right now. I haven't checked my phone and looked at the news to see what the latest sort of you know, problem was. Um, so my, my sense is we think about the larger problems that cause these things, which I think are symptoms of the structural deficiencies. Yeah, I, I mean, I want to say, I think you're raising a very important problem. And, 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 you know, and, but when you think about the you know, curing problems by constitutional amendment, I would begin by thinking, well, how would you write that amendment? Like what, you know, I mean, it's just, there's just certain things that, that uh, make sense as an amendment and some that are just, that really have to go to people's hearts and people's commitment to democracy. And I guess I'm reminded of the story that, uh, you, know, at, you know, at the end of the Constitutional Convention, uh, Benjamin Franklin was walking outside and a woman came to him and said, well, what was the result? Do we have a monarchy or a republic? And, and he says, a republic, if you can keep it. And the if you can keep it part is really important because it really is important that, uh, that, that uh, we share the same ground rules of democracy. I mean, we do, there are, thank, thank goodness, there are provisions in the Constitution that are relevant. You know, for example, like no establishment of religion, separate, you know, and so that, you know, in terms of Christian nationalism, and we do have a Constitution that mandates a democratic process. I mean, when you see autocrats in other countries, what they do is they quickly amend the Constitution to, you know, that's the biggest worry. They'll amend it to weaken it. Uh, it's a good question, though, and I'm going to think more about how could we amend it to strengthen uh, the guardrails of democracy. And let me just actually add on uh, a point that John said, what would that amendment look like? And I think that that is an important question. What would any amendment look like? And John talked about FDR and how he sort of um, did not use the amendment tools or push for amendments when he could have because he had overwhelming majorities. But that was one of his problems. He was dealing with grave national crises in the economy and other things. And he didn't know what a good amendment would even read like. So that's a problem. But then yeah. also broadly, um, 
we're talking about a constitution and it is important to have, to structure a democracy, to sort of set up foundational principles that unite us and, and other things, but realize it is just parchment. It does take us to actually you know, uphold these values. It, our constitution is only as strong as we are as a country and a government to actually enforce those values. So you know, we want to amend so that this is what is guiding us and uniting us and telling us how we should structure ourselves. But we also have a, a, an obligation ourselves to, to internalize and, and ex externalize the principles that we think are so sacred in our constitution. Wilfred and John, I again just want to thank you for, uh, for joining us, helping us celebrate Constitution Day, and, it, and it's truly been a pleasure to have you with us and, and spend the day with us. So again, thank you, and thanks for uh, your great work. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's terrific, and thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to an episode of The Rewind, a podcast series by the Houndstein Center for Presidential Studies. The audio for this episode was captured by Mark Washburn of Gyrus Media. This episode was produced and sound engineered by Maddie Miller. The Houndstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University is inspired by Ralph Houndstein's life of leadership and service and is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu hc. To keep up with our current events and recurring initiatives, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review and rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thank you for listening.